This morning we're in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 14. If you'd like to navigate over there, we're going to look at verses 22 through 36 of Matthew 14. The topic in those verses, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus tells his disciples he's no ghost when he comes to them in the storm walking on the water. The title of my message, I ain't portrayed as no ghost. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning and for the worship that we've been able to freely offer you from our hearts willingly. I pray, Lord, that our hearts now are prepared to listen to the still small voice of your spirit as he takes the word of God and makes application of it to our lives. We want to understand the context. We understand what was happening between you and your disciples and the flow of spiritual history, but we certainly want to know what you're saying to us, Lord. And so accomplish all that, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. I think I met Tim Burton once. It was over 10 years ago. Gino and I were in a Pete's coffee shop in Tarzana, California. We were talking about a Tim Burton movie that was not yet released when one of the other patrons said something to us like, I've just seen the pre-releases for the film and they look great. Meanwhile, the barista greeted him by saying, good morning, Tim. I'm pretty slow. Dense would be a better descriptor. It wasn't until it was too late that I realized it was Tim Burton. I don't know what I would have done if I had known at the time, uh, but uh, it was too late by the time I figured out it really was him. Ever since then, I'm always on the lookout for famous people. Do you do that? Do you like to look out for famous people? Probably not too much here in Hanford. Although there are some famous people in Hanford. But, you know, we go to Disneyland as often as we can, and, and there's always famous people at Disneyland. Uh, They're hard to spot. They're actually hard to recognize. Some people obviously very uh, recognizable. I have never seen him, but Brad Garrett, the comedian who's been on television, he's about 100 feet tall. He goes to Disneyland a lot, and if you follow Twitter feeds and all that, you'll see pictures of him and his kids at Disneyland. Uh, He'd be a guy that you'd spot easily, but uh, sometimes people say, well, here's so-and-so at Disneyland. Really? That's what that person looks like? So famous people can be difficult to recognize, In our verses, the disciples don't immediately recognize Jesus. When he comes to them walking on water in a storm, they first mistake him for a ghost. Only after he speaks to them do they recognize him. He gets in the boat, and then for the first time, they recognize something more about him. It says they worship him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. These are Jewish boys who have the first five books of the Bible memorized. They know you are to worship only God, to bow down and worship anything or anyone else. That's blasphemy. They were therefore having their first glimmer of the fact that Jesus was God and man, fully God and fully man in a union we cannot totally comprehend. What can we learn for ourselves as we recognize the God-man? I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you have the God-man interceding for you. And number two, you are God's men and women interacting for him. Let's take a look first of all at the God-man interceding for us in verses 22 through 33. How could Jesus be omnipotent yet weak? How could he leave the world and yet be present everywhere? How could he learn things and yet be omniscient? He can because he has two distinct natures that retain their own properties, yet remain united in one person. He is fully God 
and fully human simultaneously. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology writes, when we are talking about Jesus' human nature, we can say that he ascended to heaven and is no longer in the world. But with respect to his divine nature, we can say that Jesus is everywhere present. Then he quotes from Matthew, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And again from Matthew, I am with you always to the close of the age. So we can say that both things are true about the person of Christ. He has returned to heaven and he is also present with us. Now, when Jesus was on the earth in his first coming, though he remained fully God with all the attributes of deity, he voluntarily divested himself of the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He chose to live as a man in complete submission and obedience to the will of God the Father in the power of God the Holy Spirit. He remained God. He was fully God, but he voluntarily divested himself of his uh, prerogative to use the attributes of his deity. You see this, for example, in his temptation in the wilderness by Satan. As God, he could easily have turned stones into bread, but he divested himself of the independent exercise of his divine attributes and acted as fully human in complete submission and obedience to the will of God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're in a section of the Gospel of Matthew that explains that Jesus will return to heaven before he establishes the kingdom on the earth. The 12 disciples were on a kind of working retreat to learn how they would proceed in the Lord's absence in between his two comings. Recognizing that Jesus was God was the next lesson for his disciples. I mean, Peter walking on the water is pretty cool. But when you read that they worshiped Jesus, that's got to be the most significant event in these verses. When men are worshiping someone as God who is a man, that's telling us that he is a unique God-man. Among the things that they will learn about Jesus as the God-man is that he intercedes for his disciples in heaven and he is with them always while they are on the earth. And so verse 22, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. The previous verses describe the feeding of the 5,000, which is really more like a crowd of 20,000 when you include women and children. In the Gospel of John, we learn that the people were ready to make Jesus their king. It wasn't for the right reasons, so Jesus sent them away. The disciples were reluctant to leave as well. Jesus had to make them get into the boat They were joining the crowd in this desire to establish something. The people weren't repentant and the disciples weren't ready. The father's plan was for Jesus to pour himself out into these guys and then fill them with the Holy Spirit after he was crucified and ascended into heaven. Success or what the world would label success can be a distraction from spiritual things. We judge by outward appearance, by physical criteria like numbers, when God would have us concentrate on inward growth and spiritual criteria. And so just from a worldly point of view, you've got a a guy out in the wilderness with 12 disciples and 20,000 people who are clamoring for him to be king, and he's obviously able to do miracles. Uh, You would think, let's go, let's do this thing. And that's how we would think today, you know, I mean, if you, if you saw a church of 20,000, 30,000 people, you'd think, wow, that's a move of God. 
with some of the largest gatherings of Christians in the nation, uh, I don't know that the gospel's even being preached at some of these arenas. Uh, and so we need to be careful. Uh, you know, God's not against success. There's nothing wrong with growth numerically, but we never need, should look at the outward. We should always look at the inward. Verse 23, when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now an evening came, he was alone there. Have you ever hosted a big event and when the last guest finally left, you just crashed? The Lord's version of crashing was to ascend a mountain to be alone with God the Father. What is important to our story is to see that Jesus ascended, as it were, and was interceding the entire time his disciples were on their journey. Meanwhile, his disciples were in a boat together on their way to minister to folks on the other shore. It sounds like the situation we find ourselves in every day Jesus is gone awaiting his second coming. Jesus is ascended, not to a mountain but to heaven, where he intercedes for you and I. Meanwhile, you and I are sent out to minister to folks. If that is the picture God is drawing for us, we learn from it that it's not going to be smooth sailing on the earth. Verse 24, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Three and a half miles out, the disciples were making no progress whatsoever. On land, we'd say that they were spinning their wheels, but in this case, they were using paddles to get nowhere, so I guess we'd say they were skimming their paddles. Right? They'd been in spots like this once before, or a spot like this once before in chapter eight, but in that storm, if you'll recall, Jesus had been with them asleep on the boat. Now he was conspicuously absent. Everything in this section is preparing the disciples for Jesus' absence between his two comings. And so here they are, at Jesus is not with them, not physically with them in their journey. Here they are in the boat without the Lord. What good was it to them that he had ascended the mountain to pray? How could Jesus help them from that vantage point? Well, they were about to find out. Verse 25, now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. The fourth watch, as time was reckoned, was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. They had been on the boat all night. They were exhausted. It was the darkest hours before the dawn. It was, we would say, the last possible moment for Jesus to come to them. This in-between time in which we live, waiting for the Lord to return, it's gonna be quite stormy at times. The Lord's second coming is at the end of the seven-year Great Tribulation. The final days of the Great Tribulation will be so bad that people on the earth will think humanity itself will not survive. Uh, there's some reference to the fact that if the Lord hadn't returned, everybody would have been destroyed. I mean, the whole tribulation is going to be terrible, but especially towards the very end, people are going to wonder if humanity can survive. It's going to get darker and darker and darker during that time before the son of righteousness returns to save his people and to establish the kingdom in his second coming. 
Leading up to the great tribulation in the church age in which we live between the resurrection of Jesus and his return in the clouds to resurrect and rapture his church, there are going to be afflictions and sufferings and persecutions. Christians have been and they will continue to be martyred. But because Jesus is the God-man, we're not alone in the boat, not ever. He'd been praying, and I don't think it's going too far to say he had been praying for them in their situation in the storm. No matter your situation, the Father sees it, and the Son is interceding for you in it. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that he lives to intercede for us. It says Jesus went to them. Now, in their case, he physically went to them. This isn't true of us, but it isn't really necessary for us either. We have something, we have someone that these disciples had not yet fully received. We have God the Holy Spirit residing in us. Plus, because he is God as well as man, Jesus is omnipresent even if he's physically in heaven. I don't understand it, but it, it has to be true of Jesus because he is God and he is man at the same time. Now, for just a moment, Let's think of Jesus having divested himself of the independent exercise of his divine attributes. Remember, he's fully God, but he set that aside so that he can act and live as a man in obedience to his Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Praying for his guys, the Father finally, in the last watch, releases him to help them, but he tells Jesus to get to them on foot. This is fantastic, really. The father could have allowed Jesus to calm the storm with a word, right? Jesus could have, from the mountain, said, he didn't have to raise out his hands. I, I get into this theatrical stuff. He could have just, while he was praying, said, hey, Lord, uh, I'm gonna calm the storm right now, and then we'll go on talking. He could have raptured uh, over to the boat. In the New Testament book of Acts, there's a scene where Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, when he baptizes the Ethiopian, then the guy comes up out of the water and Philip is gone and we read that he's been divinely moved to another city. And so Jesus could have just been on the boat. There are a number of different ways that this storm could have been calm. But in this instance, the father told his son to go to them on foot in perfect human obedience, divested of the independent use of his deity, the Lord descended the mountain and walked into the Sea of Galilee, walking on the waves through the wind for three and a half miles. He did it to please his father, but also because he loved his disciples. Jesus walking on the water in the storm shows us some of the lengths that he's willing to go to to help us. It's I would say a very human show of love, something we can relate to. Every romantic movie worth its salt has a scene in which the hero must brave the elements or some other adversities to return to his beloved. If you have grandchildren or children, you're watching Frozen right now, the uh, most recent uh, movie to come out of Disney. And you know that Kristoff risks his life running over the dangerous fjords to return to Anna because he loves her and nothing can stop him from getting to her. That's, that's what Jesus is doing. It's a, it's a picture to his disciples. Sure, you know, he could have stopped the storm and then later say, hey, guys, I did that from the mountain. It was nothing, you know. Or he could have appeared on the boat, you know, which considering how he came to them, it would have really freaked them out. They may have jumped off the boat. Uh, but instead, they see him coming through the storm. Through the danger, 
uh, as it were. And, and I don't know, I can't, even, I can't even get my mind around Jesus. Walk, I mean, was he surfing? I mean, was he riding the wave? How do you walk on us? I can understand walking on water. Whenever I think of Jesus walking on the water, I think of a swimming pool, you know, or, or like the magicians do, you know, where they're walking along calm. He was walking on a storm. So, you know, this, this is, and, and the, the picture, it's, a, it's an indelible picture. I mean, it's like, here comes the Lord in our great need because he loves us. He loves us enough to walk on water, to walk through a storm. Three and a half miles after descending a mountain to get to us. Verse 26, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. I can't fault them. I would have screamed like a little girl. <laughs> Ghosts are not my cup of tea. Do you try and scare each other at home? Is that a game that you play? The kids, my, my granddaughter is pretty good at it right now. But Their help came, but not in a way they could have ever imagined. The important thing to note is that nothing can separate us from the Lord. He's never absent. We may perceive it that way, but it isn't true. If it's the last watch, darkest before the dawn, when we are physically and spiritually exhausted and all hope seems lost, well, he's praying for us to strengthen us for the trial. I need to be honest with you, though. We can't always say that the Lord will calm the storm in the nick of time. I think we, we want to believe that, and we tell others that. Oh, the Lord's gonna come through at the last minute. Well, he does, but some ships sink. Paul the Apostle, for example, was in more than one shipwreck. I mean, he was familiar with bobbing up and down in the ocean. The Lord preserved him through them, that's true, but then Paul was eventually martyred for his faith. And so let's face it, there are lifelong trials. You may have a chronic condition, for example, that you must live with. Using Paul again as our example, he had what he called a thorn in his flesh that the Lord chose to not deliver him from. Jesus may not come walking on the water to end your storm, but he's no less with you praying for you to strengthen you. If the storm takes you, you're better off because to be absent from your body is to be present with the Lord. And so the, the, the lesson here isn't that Jesus always comes in the nick of time and that you'll never sink. The lesson is that he is always with you no matter what it is you go through. Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer, it's I, don't be afraid. They heard his voice and it calmed their fears. The Lord still speaks, does he not? There's his word it's alive, it's powerful. I, I trust you've experienced being spoken to, in a sense, by the word of God as you're reading it and the Lord is making it alive to you. There's the still small voice of the spirit. There are still metaphors and similes, visions and dreams by which fearful hearts can instantly be quieted. If you are struggling today, you need such a word from the Lord. You need the Lord to speak to you. I've mentioned this many times, but a lot of times when people come in for advice or counselor, discipleship, whatever you want to call it, I, I, I have to remember before I say anything to say, hey, what has the Lord been saying to you? Is there an area of scripture you've been reading? Um, did you hear something on the radio? You know, because a lot of times either the Lord has already spoken or he's going to speak, and that is so much more powerful than any human counsel. 
Uh, even, even human counsel using the word of God. If it's not the specific word of God that uh, he has for you, uh, you need to discover that. And, and once that happens, your situation oftentimes doesn't change, but you have changed and your heart has changed. Ask for a word from the Lord. Verse 28, Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. What? Now, I, you can disagree with me, that's fine. I honestly don't know what to make of Peter's request. And commentators are split as to whether it was a shining moment of faith or another of Peter's presumptions which would turn out badly for him, which it did. And so verse 29, Jesus said, come on. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, mind you, the wind and the waves had not subsided. I give Peter props. But I don't think the lesson for that morning was get out of the boat and come over to me. I'll teach you how to walk on water. In the Gospel of John, we learned that it was the Lord's intent to board and immediately get them to their destination. As soon as he got on the boat, there was another miracle. They were there covering the last three and a half miles supernaturally. And so the Lord came to them, got on the boat, and all of a sudden they were on the shore as if nothing, storm calm, nothing was going on. Peter's request from that point of view reads like an interruption. And as, as I said, feel free to disagree. It can't really be decided one way or the other if what Peter did was commendable. Verse 30, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. Whether he was supposed to get out of the boat or not, there's a lesson for us that every Bible study on this passage points out. If you're going to walk by faith, keep your eyes on Jesus and not on your circumstances. You can only walk above your circumstances by walking by faith seated next to Christ in heaven. Verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I would have let Peter flounder for a while. You know, like in the movies or in cartoons where you go down, why is it always three times? You know, after the third time, oh, all right, that's it. You've only got three in you. Uh, but I would have let him flounder a little bit. So, oh, I can't quite get you, buddy, you know. Teach him a lesson, as it were. But Jesus helped him immediately. If someone is calling on the Lord and they are repentant and humble, Let's help them as quickly as possible. Let's forgive them. Let's restore them. I'm not talking about doing something phony with people that are still hard and, and bitter and resentful. But if somebody is calling on the Lord, humbling themselves, let's embrace them. Let's help them. Let's not think. And this is a human thing that we have. We think, well, they need to, they need to suffer a little bit for what they've done. They need to really learn their lesson. Hey, if they're repentant and humble, then they've they've learned their lesson from the Lord. And so let's uh, help them. Now, Peter received a gentle correction from Jesus. I've noted over the years that Christians are overly sensitive to even mild corrections, let alone rebukes. At least the ones that come from other well-meaning, caring believers that see them going in a wrong direction. They, they're afraid they're gonna sink because they're no longer walking with their eyes securely on the Lord. You can probably think of someone, you may have been that someone who've gotten your eyes or they've gotten their eyes off the Lord. There's something not quite right about their walk and, and their focus and all of that. And you go and you talk to them and it's like World War III. Who are you to judge and all of those kinds of things. We're not a people that like to be corrected. We need to toughen up. 
Be willing to at least hear a correction and analyze it to see if it's accurate. They're not all accurate. But if they are, it just might save you from drowning. Let me throw this out too. When was the last time you received a gentle correction from the Lord? It stands to reason that since we are all spiritual works in progress, correction is gonna be a regular experience of ours. And so if it's been a long time since you can say, yeah, God spoke to me through that message or that situation and corrected me, um, maybe you're not listening. I think we can get overly sensitive to the Lord correcting us and slough it off without doing anything about it, and that's dangerous as well. He's always reaching his hand out to help us, and um, you know we don't think, I guess the difference between us and Peter is we don't think we're drowning, but we are. Verse 32, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. If I'm one of the other 11 guys, I'm thinking the storm would have ceased a little quicker if Peter hadn't wanted to have a personal session with Jesus. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you've been all night paddling, you know, skimming the waves, getting nowhere. You're in the middle of the sea. There's a boisterous storm going on. And you're going nuts. And finally, you see Jesus, and he says, it's me. And you're thinking, all right, this is over. Hey, let me come to you. <laughs> Somebody rein that guy in. No, get in the boat. Let's get out of here. I mean, who, how long could this go on? I don't, you know, I'm done now. You ever just been done with something and think, man, please, this guy, this has to be over right now. I've been waiting for you. Can you end it right now? And so I just, Peter, it's a good thing he was a lot bigger than the rest of these guys. <laughs> There's a sense, and it's pointed out by most commentators, that the boat represents the church during Jesus' absence in between his two comings. We're all in the same boat, as it were, and should therefore maintain a unity of purpose rather than promote ourselves. Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now, exactly how much they understood about what it meant to be the son of God, we don't know. The remarkable thing, as I already mentioned, is the fact that they, all of them, without any hesitation, worshiped him. They knew Jesus was a man. Now they knew he was God. Jesus was absent, interceding for them, but he was present among them too. Nothing could separate them from his love. Their time, our time on the earth, in between his two comings will be rough sailing. It will be exhausting. It will seem darker and darker at times. All the while, his prayers and his presence sustain us because he is the God-man who loves us. Now, in verses 34 through 36, you are God's men and women interacting for him. The arrival at the opposite shore and their subsequent healing ministry seems like a quick footnote, but I think it's a continuation of the lesson the Lord was teaching. They'd been together journeying and had learned a valuable lesson about who Jesus was. Out of the boat, they learn a valuable lesson about what Jesus does. If the boat represents the church, the idea is that the Lord's prayers for and presence in the church prepares us to go out to minister to others who have great spiritual need. In the New Testament book of Ephesians, we're told that in the church, we become equipped to do the work of the ministry, and most of that ministry is stuff that takes place out in the world when we're not together. Let's see the Lord among the people and get inspired about our own interactions out in the world. Verse 34, and when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all the surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Do you think it would be going too far to say that Jesus was walking in the midst of another sea, a sea of humanity? 
We use that expression and so does the Bible, for example, in Revelation 17 to describe the human race. I think the fact that in this case it was by touching the hem of his garment that they were healed draws our eyes to Jesus' feet and to his walking among many, many people. Once before he had healed when a woman reached out and touched the hem of his garment. He'd been walking through a crowd with folks pressing against him. He'd been walking through the sea of humanity. Doesn't take much imagination to see wave after wave of sick individual coming to the Lord, touching the hem of his garment and immediately being healed. What's up with the hem? Well, Numbers 15, verse 38, it says, speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. Blue seems to be associated with heaven. You used to be able to look up in the sky and it was blue. I have a memory of that as a young boy. The color blue on the hem of the garments of the Jews was to be a reminder to them that they were unique heavenly people. As they dressed each morning and as they saw one another throughout the day, they were to remember they were pilgrims on this earth headed for a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. Jesus was exampling to his disciples that he would be leaving for heaven, but that they would remain to do the work of ministering to people, and this episode pictures that for them. He was on the earth, robed, as it were, with humanity so that as the God-man, he could minister salvation to the lost. Now, we don't wear robes with blue tassels, but we are robed, spiritually speaking. One of the illustrations we're given throughout the Bible to help us understand our relationship with Jesus has to do with clothing. Before we're saved, we're depicted in the Bible as standing before the Lord in filthy, vile robes. When we're saved, he exchanges our filthy robes for his robe of righteousness. In his absence, therefore, we are robed with his righteousness as his representatives in order to minister the gospel. It's as if people can still touch the Lord because we are among them sharing the gospel. It's as if we're in that sea of humanity, robed in the righteousness of Christ, brushing up against people, Uh, with this gospel. And so let's show others a little bit of heaven as Jesus intercedes for us and as we interact for him. Let's pray.